Gracious Lord, we thank you that you do indeed abide with us. Father, I pray that you would help us to trust in that promise as we trust in all your promises, that you are with us, that you lead us, and that you open our hearts to you. And so would you do that work now, that your word would be known and your word would be heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Polls have shown us that for most people, planning a vacation or a trip is actually more satisfying than taking one. Sometimes we look forward to something for so long that when the moment finally comes, it's kind of a letdown. It's a bit anticlimactic. In reading Genesis 21, it can kind of feel that way at first. Abraham and Sarah here have been waiting for decades for this moment, for the birth of Isaac. And then we hear in verse 2, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. That's it. No fanfare. No angelic choir singing out. Just a note. The son of promise has been born, just as the Lord said he would. Now, actually, the truth of that statement is pretty amazing. But given all the buildup that we've had here, we might have thought there'd be more. Finally getting what you've been longing for can feel that way sometimes, right? On the other hand, sometimes it's everything you could imagine and more. When I was 12 years old, I couldn't wait for Christmas that year because I knew that year it was finally going to happen. I was going to get Tecmo Super Bowl for the Super Nintendo. <laughs> the single greatest football video game ever made. It would finally be mine. Top it all off, I had to wait until Boxing Day. Not even Christmas Day. That was a long day, let me tell you. <laughs> But then I got it. I opened it, and it was like magic. It might just be my somewhat biased memory, but I am fairly certain that the moment that the wrapping paper hit the floor, a choir of angels rang out with a hallelujah chorus. Sometimes getting what you want is the best thing in the earth. In the case of Abraham and Sarah, what they have been longing for was nothing less than the promise of God to be fulfilled in and through them. When they finally held this child that they both had been longing for, it was anything but anticlimactic. Because the Lord had done for them exactly what he said he would do. God had delivered on what he promised. His word was sure. And so this morning, we're going to look at that truth. That the word of God, his promises are sure. And the reason we're going to look at that is because the entire story of Abraham and Sarah hinges on that. And then we're going to talk about how we respond to the promise of God. 
How we respond when the word of God goes to work in our lives. How do we react when what we've been longing for finally comes? Now in our passage, we see God fulfilling his word, his promise, in two different places. The first is the one we've been talking about for much of this series on Abraham. The birth of Isaac, the son of promise. Verses 1 and 2, we read this. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now, typically we look at these verses and we just see, okay, yeah, the, the birth has finally happened. But what's really being shown to us here is that the Lord has done what he said he would. Look at what's being highlighted. The Lord visited as he had said. He did as he had promised. God acted at the time of which he had spoken. The Lord knew how this whole thing was going to go. And he had the whole thing in hand start to finish. He said it would happen, and it happened exactly the way he had planned it. He's true to his word. That's the more obvious example of him fulfilling his promise in this passage, but there's actually another one. After Sarah tells Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael, the Lord visits a saddened Abraham, and he makes him a promise in verse 13. He says to Abraham, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Now, this is a very similar promise that he made to Hagar back in chapter 16, when she was first on the run from Sarah. In both these cases, the Lord announced what he would do, and it came to pass. Not in the exact moment, but at just the right time. It's how the Lord works. He works out his will. He works out his promises. He works out his word at just the right time. Isn't that what Paul tells us? At just the right time, Jesus came for us. Jesus came and he died for the ungodly. At just the right time. It's how God works. Sure enough, we continue reading in chapter 25, Ishmael would indeed become a nation in his own right. God promised, God made it happen. Now the reason we are focusing on this truth is that believing that God will deliver on his promises or not reflects what we believe about his nature. When we doubt his willingness or his ability to deliver on his promises, it means that somewhere in our hearts, we believe less of God than we should. Perhaps it reveals that deep down that, that God's actually fickle and he needs to be appeased by us like the pagans say about their false gods. Or perhaps we believe that, sure, God's powerful enough to do what he said, but not willing to because of some defect in me or maybe even some defect in him. Or maybe the problem is that we went ahead and decided what his promises are rather than searching the scriptures to see what his promises really are. Whatever the reason might be, doubting 
the sureness of his word, doubting him coming through on his promise. That's an impulse that needs to be confronted and repented of. Because if we don't believe that the Lord can or will deliver on what he has promised, how would we ever trust him with anything? How would we have any assurance at all? If you can't trust the one who promised, you're just going to keep doubting. And so we'll spend our lives thinking, well, maybe it's true, but maybe it's not. Maybe Jesus really did die for my sins, and I can have assurance of eternal life in him. Or, or maybe I'm lacking something. Maybe God only saves those who are nice enough or who do enough good things. And then where do I stand? You see how it spirals. You start to doubt him, and those doubts start to seep in to all parts of our life of faith. But God is true to his word. We can believe that he will provide all things necessary for us. We can trust that as Jesus taught, he is a good father who knows exactly what we need. Do you believe that about him? Or do you spend your time questioning his goodness and his willingness to deliver on what he has promised? Now, one of the ways we can begin to dive into that question is by asking how we respond when we see the promise of God, or the, the word of God, go to work in our lives or the life of our church or in the lives of others. Because the truth is, when we see that, we can respond differently. We see contrasting responses in our passage here, don't we? First, we see joy and love, and that's contrasted with mocking rejection. Then we see trust and hope contrasted with despair. Let's take a look at Sarah first here. How does Sarah respond? Hope, joy, love. What appears to be anticlimactic, as we said in verse 2, proves to be anything but. Look at her response in verse 6. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Promise made, promise delivered. And how does Sarah respond? Just complete joy. She is bursting at the seams with joy. I'm not quite sure if it rivals my joy at getting that video game, but this is huge. She can barely contain herself. So much so that she's actually happy that people are going to hear about how she initially laughed at this. She can't wait for people to laugh. Not with a mocking laugh, but that laugh of amazement. That laugh that looks at what the Lord has done. The laugh of faith. The, the laugh at yourself when you look back at God working and you're like, how did I do that? The laugh that says, look at what the Lord has done. You ever have one of those moments? In your life, the life of someone you know? One of those moments at all? Moments when you thought there was no way Moments when you thought it was impossible. And then the Lord goes ahead and he acts like the Lord. I remember my own life when I was 
getting ready to head to seminary. I was absolutely convinced I should go, but I also knew that there was zero way I could afford to do it. I had no idea how I was going to pay for, for the, the master's degree. I, I had no idea I was going to pay for anything. Then months after it was supposed to have arrived, I got a letter saying that I had been approved for a full scholarship. I wouldn't have to pay a thing. The Lord went ahead and acted like the Lord. He made the way. He delivered. How do you respond when he delivers? Friends, if you have a moment like that in your life, or in the life of someone you love, you know, when he goes ahead and shows you just how good a father he is, remember it. Cling to it. Write it down, because i got to tell you, your memory will change over time. Write it down. Share it with others. So that you can invite them in to share in your joy at how God is so good. Sarah, having seen God fulfill his word to her, she is bursting at the seams with the joy of the Lord. What a contrast to the bitterness and despair we have seen in her throughout this story. She's a changed woman. When the promise of God comes, how do you respond? Is it joy and love? Now there is some other laughter in our passage, isn't there? Verse 9 tells us that when Isaac was weaned, Abraham threw a celebratory feast. At that feast, Sarah saw Ishmael laughing. Now we, we read that and we think, well, what's the big deal? He's laughing. Who cares? Well, laughing actually isn't the best translation here. I'm not really sure why the ESV goes that way. He wasn't simply laughing, he was mocking. Ishmael was mocking Isaac. He's mocking the son of the promise. What's going on here is not friendly teasing or banter or playing around like siblings often do. This is rejection. And we know this because of what Paul tells us in Galatians 4.29, that Isaac was actually being persecuted by Ishmael. In this way, Isaac prefigures what Christ himself would endure, doesn't he? He's jeered at, mocked, and persecuted by those without eyes to see. He's rejected by his brother just as Christ is abandoned by those who are meant to love him. And we know, because of what appears to be a throwaway line in our passage at the end, that Ishmael not only mocks Isaac, but walks away from God himself. Toward the end of our passage, verse 21 tells us that Hagar took a wife for her son from Egypt. Now again, we might read that and think, what's the big deal? It's just an end cap note on his life, right? We don't really hear much about Ishmael after this. But remember what we have said throughout Abraham's story. Egypt is consistently used in this narrative to be a symbol of walking away from God. Going down to Egypt signified turning your back on the promise of God, on his plans and his purposes. Remember when Abraham went to Egypt, right? We read that he went down to Egypt. That's when he decided that it was a good idea to say that your wife is your sister. How'd that work out for him? 
So poorly he's going to try it again, actually. <laughs> he only gets back up on track when he comes up out of Egypt. Ishmael doesn't do that. Ishmael embraces walking away from God, and it started with him mocking God and his promises. Verse 10, Sarah sees what Ishmael is doing. She tells Abraham to cast the slave woman out with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac, she says. Again, we initially read that, and we think it's this massive overreaction. But it only sounds that way to us because we miss the gravity of the moment. It's not jealousy or vengeance that motivates Sarah. It's a defense of God. It's a defense of his character. She sees the one whom God has promised being mocked and rejected by one whom Paul calls a child of the flesh, and she will not stand for it. She has received the promise of God with joy. Her joy has increased her love for God, and so she will not see the work of God mocked by one who has rejected God. Sarah here stands as an example of faithfulness. Now, the application of this is not that if you've received Jesus, if you're truly faithful to him, you're going to walk around the church, and you're going to find all the people sitting in their lives, and you're going to cast them out. Please don't do that. <laughs> please, please do not, not, not do that. That's not the point here. The point here is that in finding joy in God and receiving him with gladness and having your love for him increase, you will care about how he is spoken of. You will care about whether his name is honored or not. Before I was a Christian, I didn't really care if people took the Lord's name in vain. I mean, it kind of bothered me because, you know, I knew somewhere that it's probably not a great thing to do, but it, I mean didn't really have any effect. Now, if I read it online or even in a novel, it, makes, it turns my stomach. Because if we can trust God as the good father who delivers on every promise for his people, then hearing people speak ill of him, hearing his name taken in vain or mocked, that's going to bother us. Because it questions who he is. It diminishes him. And if we allow that to happen in our own hearts, then we will eventually turn away from him and embrace the world just like Ishmael did. Remember, just a couple chapters ago, he took the sign of the covenant people. He said, this is who I'm a part of. And now he's walking away entirely. Why? Because he was mocking God. He chooses the world over the Lord. When the promise of God comes, when the word goes to work in you, how do you respond? When you hear the promise, that word of God that Jesus actually did die for your sins and that by faith you can be made his, how do you respond? And seeing the work of Christ in your life, growing you so that you begin to reject the sin you used to love. How do you respond? One last contrast to look at this morning. Trust and hope. Or despair. 
I do love that we get to see Abraham struggle with casting out Hagar and Ishmael. You remember how poorly that relationship started. And to now see that grow and develop into a genuine love for this son and his mother. It's a, it's a great thing to see. And Abraham knows that Sarah's right, but he's still heartbroken about it. That's an important reminder that even as we read about in 2 Thessalonians, right, that, that while casting out is sometimes necessary, it's not done for the purpose of condemnation. Rather, it's done with the hope of someone being convicted of their sin, repenting and turning back. It's done in the hope that that, that such a drastic step will help them to see their need for God. It's not something we do lightly. We still love that person. We long for them to return. It's an act of love, not despair. It's an act of hope, not despair. Hagar and Ishmael will be presented with the opportunity to turn back, as we'll, we'll read about. That was the hope. God reminds Abraham of this in verses 12 and 13. He tells him not to worry, that that he's going to watch over Hagar and Ishmael because he's Abraham's offspring. Because of Abraham's love for him, the Lord will watch over them. He's still concerned for them, but he sends them out trusting and resting his hope in the Lord. Here, Abraham stands in contrast to Hagar. Abraham trusts in the Lord and he holds on to hope. Hagar looks at the circumstances of her life that she faces, which are certainly dire. We don't want to minimize them. But she gets gripped by despair. She places her collapsing son under a tree so that she won't have to watch him die. She assumes it's all over. Yet, what did we read in chapter 16? The Lord had told her that he would multiply her offspring and that her son would be a great nation. Hagar has allowed the circumstances that she sees to cloud her memory. She's forgotten that this is the God who hears and sees. In verse 17, it's Ishmael that the Lord hears crying out, though he will ultimately reject the Lord. But the Lord hears him. Hagar makes no similar cry. She despairs of her situation, and she forgets the Lord. Yet the Lord, having heard Ishmael, tells Hagar not to fear. Go back to your boy, for he will be a great nation. He reminds her of the promise that he is true to his word, and then he opens her eyes so that she might see how he provides. And sure enough, there's a well of water for a woman dying of thirst. The Lord provides. He's true to his word. And sadly, they still turn away from him. Abraham sent them out trusting in the sure promise of God that he would provide for them. Hagar despaired, forgot, and then even after the Lord provided, rejected. She took the water, but then chose Egypt over the promised land. She and Ishmael Ishmael chose this world over life with God, and it all started when Ishmael looked at the son of promise, the work of God, and mocked it. 
The great New Testament scholar Ian Duguid writes, On a different scale, it is the same for all of us. Our spiritual future rests on our response to Jesus, the child of promise. The rejoicing of faith leads to the path of blessing. The scornful laughter of unbelief may not lead to immediate physical disaster, but it means being cut off from God's richest blessing, the blessing of eternal life. It's a word we need to hear. That we too can value the things of this world over the promise of God that he wants us to be with him forever. In part because the things of this world seem more immediate and we tend to value the immediate over the important, don't we? And so we take the blessing of God and then we run after the things of this world. We take the money and run, as we like to say. For both Hagar and Ishmael, they allowed what they saw, their circumstances, to define how they would view God, ultimately choosing the answers of this world over the hope of something greater. When the word of God goes to work in you, how will you respond? Is it joy and love and trust and hope that has gripped your heart? Friends, I gotta tell you, that video game is pretty awesome. <laughs> I played the stuffing out of that game. If I still had it, I'd still play it. That joy that I was given by that, the joy of anything we can get in this world, that is nothing near the surpassing joy of knowing Jesus as our Lord. It is the joy that makes all other joys seem meaningless. The promise came to Sarah, even though she didn't believe it would. Even though she laughed in despair when she first heard it, the promise came, the word of God went to work and she received it with joy because she considered him who promised to be faithful. When the promise of God comes, when the word of God goes to work in you, how will you respond? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.